Okay, we are in uh, John, and we are going to pick it up in verse chapter one, John chapter one, verse thirty-five, continu- continuing in the life of Jesus. Now, let me just say that this is one of the only times in scriptures. There's only two times in scriptures where you, you see an entire week mapped out where it tells you this happened this day, this happened this day, and you get through an entire week. And actually, John chapter 1, from verse 19 through 28, is one day. And then it says in verse 29, the next day. And then, so 29 through 34 is a second day. And then 35 through 42 is a third day. And then it says in verse 43, the next day. So 43 through 51 is, is day 4. And then, it, and, and then day 5 and 6, nothing is recorded. Because that then it tells us in chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day, there was the wedding feast. So that, that after day 4, on the third day, was the wedding feast. And the wedding feast actually goes for seven days. And so that, that, was, that was another week, that wedding feast. But anyway, it maps out a whole week. The only other time we see this is in the Passion Week. This is the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus lived, Jesus' ministry spanned four Passovers. His ministry started a few months before this first Passover, which we're going to hit soon. And then uh, on that fourth Passover is the day that, that he was crucified. So his ministry spanned over a period of four Passovers, a uh, little over three years, three and a half years or so. So, um, <clears throat> verse 35 of John chapter 1. And again, again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed there with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and he found his own brother Simon and and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Which translated, which which is translated Peter. So what we see here is that Jesus is, is starting to to call his disciples. There were two disciples of John the Baptist standing there with John the Baptist, and John points out Jesus. John the Baptist points out Jesus, and he says, he says, uh, "Behold the Lamb of God." So remember, John's ministry, as we've looked at many times in Acts chapter 19, it's summarized in one verse in Acts chapter 19. John's ministry was to inform people about the coming Messiah, and the commitment was that whomever John pointed out as the Messiah, they would accept as the Messiah. That was what John's baptism was all, all about, and that was summarized for us in Acts chapter 19 in one sentence by Paul. And, and uh, so John points out to two of his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God. So right away they start following Jesus. They were keeping their commitment in John the Baptist's baptism to follow the Messiah when he had been pointed out. These two people that had seen, uh, um, that had seen 
that, that John was speaking to, John the Baptist was speaking to, that he, he, he pointed out, it says that one of them was named Andrew. It doesn't name the other one, but since he goes unnamed, we know who he is. And it's actually talked about later. And that is John. Now, not John the Baptist. So remember, there are multiple people with the name John. There's John the Baptist, John who baptized. There was also John the Disciple, the one who wrote this book, the Gospel according to John. He also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He also wrote the book of Revelation. So that is the John that is with Andrew that is with John the Baptist. So John the Baptist, John, and Andrew are standing together. John the Baptist says, hey, John and Andrew, Jesus he says, the Lamb of God. So John and Andrew start following. You say, well, why isn't John's name mentioned? John does this. Throughout the Gospel of John, you don't see John mention his own name. He will refer to himself. In one case, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He will refer to himself as the one who had his head leaning upon Jesus. He will refer to himself as the one who was standing by the cross, but he won't name himself. This is, that was the, the way that he wrote. So anyway, and it turns out John had a brother named James that, that comes to, to, to be a disciple as well. They were both sons of Zebedee. We, we at some point see John and James's mother comes later on in the Gospels, which we'll see, and she approaches Jesus and says, could you make my two sons, you know, number one in the kingdom, sit with your right hand and your left hand along with you. So we know very little about many of the disciples from Scripture. Some of the disciples we know more of than others. So here's, here's uh, Andrew and John start to follow Jesus. And it says in verse 37, the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and see so they came and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And, and uh, um, this, the, the tenth hour, uh, many people feel that this is Roman time, because John wrote this gospel much later, and this may well mean 10 a.m., because the Romans use time like we do. When we say it's, it, it's 10, we mean it, it's 10 a.m. Our day starts at midnight. That's how it did for the Romans. With the Jews, it started differently. It started early in the morning, around six. So, so, um, but, but, so we're not absolutely sure what that tenth hour is. But look at the dialogue here. Jesus says to them when they start following him. He says, "They say." He says, "What do you seek?" And their reply to him is, "Where are you staying?" It's a funny dialogue. What is it that you seek? Where are you staying? And it turns out this was a normal practice in that day. The Jewish writings talk about this, that if a person wanted to be discipled by a particular rabbi, that individual would follow the rabbi, not to make himself uh, a nuisance, he wouldn't follow very closely, but he'd stand back and listen. And eventually the rabbi who, who would see him would turn and say, what do you seek? And the the uh, the rabbi would say, if if the rabbi was interested in taking this person on as a disciple, the rabbi would say, come and you will see. If the rabbi was not interested, he would not answer the individual. So this was a common practice. So it makes sense with the pattern of that day. And so they go, and in Jesus saying, come and you will see, he is now accepting these two as his first two disciples. So this is... Uh, uh, 
This is Andrew, and this is John. Now what you see is you see in, in verse 40, and one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which translated this Peter. So he, he right away goes and he gets his brother. You will find people like this. When, when people first come to Jesus, very often... They want to bring others along with them. So they get saved and they want to bring others along with them to help them with this ministry. To help them along in the ministry. So this is not at all uncommon. In fact, a very common way uh, uh, you will see when people get saved, they're very interested in people around them. And then you spend several years uh, uh, and, and you get this new circle of friends and there's less contact with others. But it's very common early on. So he goes and he gets his brother. Now Peter, Simon Peter, may well have been also baptized by John, the Baptist, so that when he hears, we have seen the Christ, boom, he accepts this as the Christ. Jesus, though, immediately sees him and renames him, gives him yet another name, this, this sand to rock. But Jesus, Jesus uh, renames him, which is almost a way of affection. You know, it's not something bad if you don't care about somebody. But if you really care about somebody, you, you sometimes rename them. In fact, you will often find this with, with parents love their kids so much. There's, there's another name that they will give them that the parent likes to call them that particular name. And so it says in, in verse 43, now we're going to the next day. And the next day he purposed to go into Galilee. And he found Philip and Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Okay, so this particular disciple, Jesus looks at him and says, follow me. And Philip starts to follow. Different pattern here. Follow me and he starts to follow. Again, we don't know if Philip had already been baptized by John the Baptist. He may well have. Apparently, John the Baptist had had an impact in that city because it says that's the same city that Andrew and Peter were from. Then he goes on, and here we find another interesting thing. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him and said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, you will see heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So another, again, another really interesting dialogue. So Peter starts following, I'm sorry, <clears throat> Philip starts following Jesus. And right away, <clears throat> he goes and he gets his friend Nathaniel. And you will find this. There are some people that are absolute magnets for the Lord. And they are great to have in your group. They go and they bring all sorts of other people. We had a, a young lady in, in, in this class at one point, And the only limitation was that she drove a geo, and I don't know if you remember geos, but they were the 
the smallest, junkiest cars you could possibly buy. But that's what she had. She was in. Uh, she was studying physical therapy at the uh, uh, um, at the women's uh, at, at the Texas Women's School or something. It's in the medical center. And and uh, uh, I told her. I said, you know, Tricia, we need to get you a van because the only limiting factor for you bringing people is the size of your car. She was an absolute magnet for people. And, and you will see this, and she's gone off to the mission field, and she's spoken in this class before. Her name now is Tricia Blackford. And, uh, uh, but you will find people like that, and it's great to have those people around because they can really build a church. They're just very good at inviting. So Philip goes out, and he says to Nathaniel, We have found the one of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. <clears throat> so, Jesus, remember, he hailed from Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem, goes to Egypt to flee Herod with his parents, goes back and is brought up in Nazareth. Nazareth was looked upon poorly because there was not good religious education in Nazareth, not at all. And so, interestingly, Nathaniel says something. He says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? It's not derogatory. It's just like, you know, this is not what I expected. You're telling me that this is the one who the law and the prophets wrote. It's hard to believe he's coming out of Nazareth. And, and uh, he says, this is Jesus, the son of Joseph. So Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip says, come and see. Now again, a really interesting dialogue. Jesus saw Nathanael coming, said to him, Behold an Israelite indeed, indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? So Jesus sees Nathanael coming and he says, Behold an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And then Nathanael says, how do you know me? There's something, it just strikes him. And Jesus said, uh, uh, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, if I say to you... Um, so, so if, if, if I were to say to you, you, you know, uh, I saw you in Rice Village last night, you would not say, wow, you're the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. Right? I, I mean, this is not a normal response. What's going on here? Why should Nathaniel, all of a sudden, when he says, behold an Israelite indeed whom, in whom there is no guile, say, how do you know me? And Jesus said, well, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. And he said, you are the Son of God. You must be the Son of God, the King of Israel. You know, a very strange thing to say. Well, it turns out, if you look at this, he's, it, um, what's this meaning of the fig tree? In rabbinic writings, the fig tree was often a place of teaching. You'd sit under a fig tree for teaching the rabbinic writings and also for scripture memorization. So remember, nobody... Everybody didn't have their, you, you know, their pocket Old Testament at that time, nor did they have it on their, their smartphones at that time. So there, there was a copy that was kept in the synagogue on big scrolls. And so, so individuals would memorize portions, and the rabbinic writings say the best place to memorize Scripture is under a fig tree. And I'm not sure why that is. You know, if you get hungry or something, there's figs there. I'm not sure why that is. But, but uh, you sit in the shade, but the sun certainly in Israel is very intense, and you sit in the shade and you memorize, you recite the scripture. 
so fig tree w- was done for that. But he says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no God. Why use the term Israelite? Jesus never uses that term again anywhere in the New Testament. There was the first Israel. His real name, his original name was Jacob. God gave him a new name, Israel, which means to strive with God. Jacob had deceit in his heart. Remember, Jacob had deceived his father, gotten a a blessing that he was not supposed to get, even though it was at the prompting of his mother. So he was an Israelite in whom there was deceit. It may well have been that Nathanael was meditating on this very portion from Genesis 28 about Jacob being renamed an Israelite. And then when it goes on, Jesus says to him, he says, he, he says to him, uh, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. In other words, when you were spending time with me, I saw you. But how do we know this? In verse 50, Jesus said to him, because I said I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You're going to see greater things than these. Truly I say to you, you will see the heavens open and angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Where do we see angels of God ascending and descending? Jacob. In Jacob's dream. This guy was probably meditating on Jacob's dream. From the portion of the scriptures from Genesis chapter 28. So Jesus just nailed it one after another. I know what you were memorizing. I know what you were meditating on. I know what you were thinking. I saw you. You were having fellowship with me. Only something like that could prompt anybody in their right mind to say, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. That would be a very strange response. That isn't what any of these others said to him when they saw him. He was so moved that Jesus knew the very thoughts in his mind. Jesus knew what he was meditating upon. Jesus knew. And Jesus called it, and this guy was just blown over. And so Jesus starts gathering up these disciples. So I'm going to name the names of the disciples. He's only got five so far. He's only got five disciples. So the disciples are Simon Peter, Andrew, his brother. There's, uh, uh, there's John, and then there's James. James hasn't yet been called, but there's John and James who are brothers. Then there's Philip of Bethsaida. We just saw Philip. Then there's Nathaniel, who's also called Bartholomew. And uh, uh, sometimes in the, in the Bible he's referred to as Bartholomew. Then there's Thomas, sometimes called Didymus, meaning the twin. So in other words, he had a twin brother somewhere. There's Matthew, the tax collector. There's James, the son of Alphaeus, or sometimes referred to as James the Less. Uh, uh, could well have been uh, um, uh, a, a younger James, James the Less. So in other words, you had James the brother of John, and then you had James the Less, or little James, young James. Uh, So James the son of Alphaeus. And then there's Lebius, sometimes called Thaddeus, and also called Judas. This is not the bad Judas. There were two Judases. Judas's other name, this particular Judas's other names were Thaddeus and Lebius. And then there was Simon the Canaanite, or sometimes referred to as Simon the Zealite. Uh, The Zealites were a particular group of people that were very zealous for the law, Sometimes when they saw people that, that favored Herod, they would go with small daggers and daggers in crowds and they would kill them. So they were very zealous 
so that was uh, Simon the, the, the Canaanite or Simon the Zealite. And the last, the one who was always named last, was Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. So those were the twelve disciples. And uh, most of them we know very little about. You know, just a couple of mentions in, in, in the New Testament about them. But history tells us more of their lives. Okay, so then in, in John chapter 2, reading from verse 1, it says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So Jesus is invited, as are his first five disciples. So it's not the, the twelve yet. So on the third day, that means three days after the last event that we had seen. So this is now seven days of recording that we have. There is now a wedding feast. The wedding feast would now last for seven days. You say, how can a wedding go on for seven days? I agree with you. I mean, if a wedding goes on for more than two hours, I, I mean, it's long for me. But, but um, uh, seven days. But in, in, in Shireen's country, a wedding goes on for days. Just days you're at, at, at these weddings. And so it's not unusual in that culture at that time. So this wedding's going on. His five disciples, his five first five disciples, so that, that Simon Peter, Andrew, John, Philip, and Nathaniel are also invited, which would mean that it seems like they're from around this community. You know, this, this Cana of Galilee, you know, they, 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 they hear about this, and so they go. So it's not like Jesus brought five extra guys, and that's why, you know, the wine ran out. No, I mean, it says that they also were invited. And this is the place where Jesus turns the water into wine. It says this is the first miracle that Jesus performed. It's the first miracle that he did. Uh, see in verse 11. This is the beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifest his glory and his disciples believed in him. And so this is the first of the miracles, the open miracles that he did. And this is one of the passages that, that gives scholars understanding as to why uh, 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 supposed other Gospels are not accepted. There are some other Gospels that, that uh, people say should be accepted, but they're not. And in one of them, Jesus is a boy, and he turns clay into, in, into live birds. And it's because these particular verses, it doesn't match up with things that are said in the Gospels that we have. These are why some of those other, other so-called Gospels are not accepted. But what, what I want to do is I want to pick up in verse 13, the first Passover feast. So this is the first one of four. Remember, on the fourth one, Jesus is going to be crucified. This is the first one of four that his ministry is part of. And this is just a few months into his ministry. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords, and he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these away, stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for thy house, zeal for your house will consume me. So, there's this interesting portion that happens. Jesus goes up with his disciples, goes up to Jerusalem, and he sees the money changers, and he sees all this business going on. So this was called in rabbinic writings, the Bazaar of the Sons of Annas. 
Annas was a Sadducee, as were the priests. They were Sadducees. Remember, there were Sadducees and there were Pharisees. Sadducees had about two-thirds of the seats on the Sanhedrin, 70 men that were over the religious law for Israel. They had about two-thirds or three-fourths of the seat in the Sanhedrin. The other uh, fourth or third belonged to Pharisees. Pharisees believed that you could get close to God through scholarly study. This is very much analogous to what we believe uh, in that sense. The Sadducees said everything had to go through the offering in, in the temple, and they kept control of that. The high priests were always Sadducees. Um, and, and so the high priests at this, this point were Sadducees. So you had uh, uh, Annas and his sons who were following in his footsteps, and he controlled this. Bazaar of the sons of Annas, the Pharisees hated it. And he would have control. And so you would bring your offering. You were totally entitled to bring your offering. The priest would always find something wrong with your offering. Say you got to buy one from them at a highly inflated price. You didn't want to buy it. You had, it was a long trek. You know, it was days to go back home and get another one. So you'd end up buying it. But remember, you couldn't just buy it using the currency of the land, the Roman currency. You had to use the temple currency because Roman currency had the inscription of Caesars on it. So, just as we change money when we go to other countries and we have to go through an exchange and you pay a fee, Annas and his family would collect that fee. So, there were the money changers and there were those who sold animals. And so, this, this was an abuse of power. And, and uh, so, Jesus got really upset about this. And what he, would do, what he did is he made a scourge of cords and he drove them out of the temple. This is a very bold thing to do. You know, the man was utterly fearless. A bold thing that he did. He drove them out of the temple. And uh, uh, this is not the first time he does it. There is a second time that he's going to do it, as we're going to see later on in this ministry. He does it here at the beginning. He also does it near the end of his ministry. And in fact, it happened again in 66 AD. The Pharisees themselves cleaned out the temple in the same way about three years, in about 66 or 67 AD, uh, about three years before the ultimate fall of the temple. They got so upset with it as well. So I'm sure the Pharisees were on his side for this. But the key point is here, zeal for thy house will consume me. You know, one of my prayers for, for a long time is, is I don't want to become lethargic in my faith. I don't want to become to a point where, you know, I just go to church and it doesn't really impact my life. How can I keep from becoming lazy in my faith? This is something that all of us should have a healthy fear of. Becoming lethargic in our faith. Becoming lazy in our faith. This is something that we should all be afraid that could happen to us. Jesus, it was said of him, zeal for thy house will consume me. How is it that I could keep from becoming lazy in my faith or tired in my faith? I think one of the first things to do is to see people who really care about their faith and model this for them. I have people who work for me, people who work in my lab, graduate students and postdocs who work in my lab. Those that I like most, those that are most effective are those that really care about the laboratory, those that really care about the place of work. If you don't really care, it's hard to please your boss. I once had a, a secretary that didn't care 
anything about the place. You know, I'd ask her to do stuff, and she'd say, okay, she'd never get it done. And she really didn't care. I mean, she'd come late, she'd leave early, and, and uh, I didn't like her at all. I'll tell you, I, I, right out, I didn't like her at all. And uh, uh, the, the students that I like most, the people in my lab that I like most, are the people that really care about the place. So when they see something, they fix it. When they see something, they want to address it. It matters to them. Uh, you will find that there are things that you care about. I'll, I'll tell you, most students don't care much about what's going on in the stock market. They don't see it. But when you are invested in the stock market, then you will care. I guarantee it, then you will care. You go out, you get a real job, a 401k, and you see a portion of your paycheck going into a 401k, which is vested heavily in the stock market. You will all of a sudden start checking what the stock market's doing. Why? Because you are invested in it. You sit in the colleges and you don't care when you see students, you know, stand on tables and put their feet up on, you know, tables. Ah, doesn't bother me. You do it too. Wait until you buy your own house and you spend your hard-earned money on furniture. You will really care if people come in and put their feet, their, their dirty shoes up on the table and stand on tables. You will really care. Why? Because you have something invested in that. Then you really start caring about it. You won't care about your community in which you live, the neighborhood in which you live. You won't care very much until you have children. Then you will very quickly start caring about the community, the crime in the community, the schools in the community. As students, as, as college students, you are oblivious to the community, to the quality of the schools, to the crime. As long as, as, long as in your cloistered little campus you're okay, then, then you know, what happens you know, beyond the hedges doesn't matter. But when you are invested in that community, then it starts mattering to you. It's the same with a church. If you become part of a church and you start giving something to the body of Christ, and you start giving a tithe to the body of Christ there, you all of a sudden start getting really concerned about it. This is not a bad thing. It is a good thing. It is the same with God. Scripture says, zeal for thy house, Zeal for your house will consume me. The man really cared about the temple because it says this is where God dwelt. He really cared about it. And so what we're going to look at next time is we're going to talk about what it means to be invested in something and how do I maintain my zeal. Because I am fearful for myself. Am I going to become lazy in my faith? Am I going to become one? that just comes to church on Sunday and sits on my behind the rest of the week and does nothing for the purpose of God, has no view of God, am I going to be like that? Because many people start out on fire and then, as Jesus talks about, the cares and the worries of the world start slipping in. They become less and less concerned about the body of Christ. Very few prayers going up. For the salvation of others. Lord, is this going to happen to me? I worry about this. I am concerned for my own spiritual life. Is this, is, is this going to happen to me? So what I'm going to teach you are steps that I take. And these steps aren't things that I've invented. Every good habit that I have, I have learned from godly men. That God has put in my life. 
And I will teach you the things that keep me seeking after God, that keep me concerned, that keep me wanting to share. Why should I do this? Why should I care? You know, am I worried that they're going to cut my, my salary in half if I don't teach this class? You know, why should I care? You're somebody else's kid. This is, your, this is your parents' responsibility. i got my own four kids. I'll focus in on them. Why should I care? I will share with you why I care and how I keep caring. Why it is that I care and how I keep doing this. I got saved at the age of 18. I've known many young people to get saved in college and they get all excited about the Lord. And then you see them a decade later and there's nothing. Yeah, they still go to church, but there's nothing else there. You need to be concerned about your spiritual life so that zeal for God's house will be consuming you and will go over steps that you should take to do this. And if you don't, it will be a loss to the body of Christ, but it will be a greater loss to you. It will be a greater loss to you. So we'll talk about that next week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word, for what you've shown us and taught us. And Father, I pray for these young people that you would be placing within them a zeal for the body of Christ, an excitement for the Lord. Father, I pray for your grace to be poured out in their lives, that you would do this, O Lord. Father, I pray that you give them a heart to seek you, to seek your face, and that zeal for your house for the body of Christ, for the things that you care about, would consume these young people. Father, I pray for your grace in that. And I commit their young lives to you. Bless them richly in the name of Jesus. Amen.